This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. My name is Kira Shaver, and I am an assistant professor in the pulmonary division at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. I am currently in the second year of my KO8 award studying ARDS and primary graft dysfunction. And as I was preparing my K, I realized that grant writing can be quite a process, and I realized that I didn't know as much as I would have liked about the NIH and how the grant review process really worked. This past August, I attended a K-R workshop that was conducted by the Lung Diseases Branch of the NHLBI, and, we, and I thought it would be helpful to share some of the things that I learned with a wider group. I am here today with uh, Zenia Tino from the NIH, and uh, we uh, will talk through some of the things that we learned. Zenia, would you like to tell the group about who you are and what you do? Yes, uh, so my name is Senia Tigno. I am a program officer at the Division of Lung Diseases. I am usually concerned with training grants, so that spans everything from fellowships to T32 grants, and I oversee a lot of them. And this, uh, as Kiara mentioned, we had a workshop recently to help our K awardees transition to our awards. And so... Um, we hope that through this uh, interview, we can help and assist our other K awardees to progress as well. Thanks, Senia. So one of the things when I was getting my K ready is I really didn't know what the difference was between an SRO and a PO at the NIH and wasn't sure how I was supposed to be interacting with these uh, people. Can you explain to us what an SRO is and what a PO is? So the SRO is the scientific review officer and the PO is the program officers. And both these designations pertain to what the NIH considers as, scientific, as health scientist administrators. They are both doctorally prepared um, professionals whose scientific backgrounds are close to the areas that they are assigned to. So the scientific review officer is the federal official which oversees the review process. So he performs or reviews all the applications that are signed to his or her study section to ensure completeness and accuracy. He or she also selects the reviewers for the study sections that he is overseeing. And the standing members of these study sections serve a particular term, sometimes four years, sometimes six years. And um, if there is no person with an expertise pertinent to a particular application, then ad hoc reviewers are also recruited as needed. And naturally, the standing members of a study section are selected based on their expertise, their track record, their reputation, and also sometimes from suggestions from program directors who oversee that particular area of research. The program officer, on the other hand, is the federal official who supports the, intra, the extramural grant applicants. So they are the ones that you interact with, 
even before you submit your application. And um, the uh, program officers are the people that you would like to call to see whether your particular application is suitable, for instance, for the NHLBI, or should it go to another IC of the NIH. So they will be able to advise you whether the aims that you're proposing are actually within the mission of the NHLBI. So before you submit your application, you can call your program officer. Once you have submitted your application, then it is no longer appropriate for you to contact your program officer. And instead, if you have any questions regarding your application, you should contact the scientific review officer. Okay. And after study section happens and you're waiting for your summary statements or you have your summary statements, do you, do you then go back to talking to your PO or do you still contact your SRO about that? So once the summary statement is released, then you can contact your program officer once again because at that time, the purview of the SRO is finished. He has sent out the uh, discussion points that were brought up during the review. And then you can discuss the summary statement with your program officer. If, for instance, you are unsure whether your score is good enough to be funded or not, then you can ask your program officer, do you think, what are the chances of my application being funded this time around? Or if it was in a borderline score or or above that, again, you can say, what can I do to make it more competitive so that you have a better framework to start with when you resubmit? So you cannot ask your program officer who were the ones who reviewed my application. Program officers also, by the way, sit in during the reviews to see how the review panel viewed the application. They can take down notes and note what were the weaknesses and strengths noted, but you cannot ask verbatim what do they say, who who were there, who said this or that. Those are confidential information. And the program officer can only discuss with you what you see in your summary statement, maybe make a few suggestions or interpretations of what the language is about. But again, there are items in the review where neither the reviewer nor the SRO nor the PO can discuss with you because of the confidentiality issue. Sure. One of the pieces of advice that I was given when I was preparing my K and then was reinforced at this workshop was the importance of contacting your PO and SRO to discuss your grant and your aims. And one of the things I was uncertain of that I've also heard other colleagues say is that we weren't sure what to say when you call your PO or SRO. Can you give us some examples of the types of questions that are asked uh, either before submission or after submission that that might be helpful for us to think about to improve our interactions with the NIH as young investigators? Yeah, so number one, you did not discuss the aims with the SRO. That is not his function. You can discuss your aims with your program officer, again, as I mentioned, before you even submit because your aims 
especially in areas where there is overlap, may, act, may not actually be suitable for the particular IC you were thinking of. Many times you get questions about aims related to lung cancer, for instance. We do not do lung cancer, you know, and so this is not the appropriate institute, and your PO will tell you that maybe you, you, it's better for you to apply at NCI. So things of that nature, you know. And again, there are ma many overlaps with, say, NIAID. So even before you submit your application, it is best to send your list of aims to the program officer that you feel is, is the expert in that area. And there is a listing of the different portfolios in the website and the program officers who are assigned to that particular area. And you can contact them and ask, is this within the purview of an HLBI? The program officer will also tell you what are the topics that are currently hot and are being viewed with a lot of positivity or the NHLBI is particularly interested in in this in this realm or in this in this particular time. And so then you would get a better sense of the appropriateness of your application to either the NHLBI versus another institute or maybe to the subject area in general. So That sounds really helpful. And I think the mm -hmm. other thing that I wasn't uh, totally aware of at the time that we talked about at the workshop was the NIH reporter has some new tools like the matchmaker that will help you look to see where you can put in your abstract or your keywords and it will show you other similar NIH grants that have been awarded and then you can tell from there which um, sections they were reviewed by and, and who the contact people were for those grants which can help get a sense to make sure that the, all the work that we put into our, our applications that we we eventually send things to the correct uh, or most advantageous study section uh, for successful consideration. Yeah. Can you move your grant, uh, your grant to a different study section? Yeah, so usually when a grant comes in, it is reviewed by receipt and referral. That is another part of the NIH which looks over the application and they have certain algorithms that they use to see which is the most appropriate study section for for this particular application. And um, you can speak with the SRO if, for instance, your application has been assigned and you did not feel that it was appropriate study section, you can call the SRO and ask if you can move your, your application. So, for instance, your application was in asthma, and you felt that this was totally within NHLBI, and you requested NHLBI as your primary funding institute, but the Division of Receipt and Referral assigned your application to NIAID. And that is, sometimes, it sometimes happens because the two institutes have shared interests in asthma. You can make a request, for instance, for a change of institute, but uh, it really depends on the NHLBI or the DRR whether to allow that transfer or not, based okay. on the SRO, again, in charge of the study section. Many times it is honored, sometimes it is not, but you can always make a request, in other words. Okay, thank you. And so that is within actually what the scientific review officer does. And the program officer, as mentioned, has 
nothing to do with the review because that is sort of a a rule that review does not have any influence on program. Program has no influence on review. It's like, um, shall we say, check and balance. We are independent sure. of each other. So to sort to summarize briefly that section, your SRO is the person in your primary point of contact for the study section related issues. So after you've submitted your grant and while it's under review, your person to talk to would be the SRO if there was an issue with study section or you had questions about that. And your PO is your primary point of contact before submission if you want to talk about your aims and whether they fall under the purview of of that section. And then after you get your summary statements, if you have questions about your funding lines and what the process is to go from review to funding, then your PO is the right point of contact for that. And if at any time you call either your SRO or your PO with a question and that's not the correct person to ask or it's something that they're not able to answer, then they will refer you to the correct person at the NIH who would be able to answer your question. That is correct. So the, we another, often receive some some emails and we say, um, for instance, before the summary statement is released, asking what happened to my application. And the PO will not be able to answer that without the summary sta- statement being released by the SRO. So you're more or less both blind to the results. Of course, the um, PO would have listened to the review and has an idea, but until the the uh, score is out and the summary statement is out, they will certainly not be able to help you with that. Okay, thank you. The other really big important topic that we spent a lot of time discussing at the workshop was how your early stage investigator status influences how your first R01 application is reviewed and perceived. And I think the more specific things that I didn't understand as well is is, is I knew that ESI status gives you a percentile bump after the review process, but I didn't understand that ESI grants are actually handled differently during study section. Can you talk about how the ESI grants are discussed? Yes. So first of all, it is important when you apply that you do indicate that you are an ESI if you are an ESI, and then this will be categorized as such because, again, there are many advantages to being an ESI. So when you Submit your application, check that box that you are an ESI. Of course, the NIH will also have mechanisms to determine whether what you put there is actually correct or not. But an ESI, as you mentioned, will get a 10% bump. So if the pay line is 15 and you are an ESI and you got a 25, you're still within the fundable range. Not only that, when you renew the same R01 application, for instance, the next time around, what we call a type 2, a renewal of the R01, you still get a 5% bump up, so five years later. So it's really important that you uh, write that down, that you are an ESI. Secondly, ESIs are usually clustered together during the review so that the reviewers know that this particular application came from an ESI because the career stage 
is considered during the review. The expectation is that the ESIs will have fewer publications and maybe less experimental data than established investigators. And then they will also assess the rationale and the applicant experience and training when evaluating the feasibility of the project that you are proposing. You do not need to have a mentor for your R01 application because this is supposed to be an independent uh, application without a mentor, but you can always have a co-investigator or include the mentor as um, part of your co-eyes, for instance, or to give you complementary expertise. Number a number of things that you shouldn't do as an ESI is to submit um, an MPI or a multiple PI application where one of the multiple PIs is not an ESI because then you will lose your ESI status. For instance, you decided to have three people on the application, all of which are equivalent PIs, but one of them was your mentor or as an established investigator, then all of you will not be considered as ESIs. So again, you could have an MPI for as long as the other is an ESI as well. Then you don't lose your status. So when you're turning in a grant, the things you really want to make sure that you do are to make sure that you have correctly indicated your ESI status and then make sure that your co-PIs, if there are any, are also early stage investigators because if you have someone who is more senior as a co-PI, then that grant is not considered an ESI application. Um, but it's okay to have more senior investigators as consultants or other key personnel, just not as your co-PI. Correct. So they could be co-IS, co-investigators, or collaborators. And what advice would you have for a K awardee to try to give them key tips to improve their success in getting an R? So I think for me the number one issue would be to be clear within yourself. What is your research question? Try to phrase it to yourself in one sentence. And if you cannot be concise about it or be clear about it, then it is likely that whoever is going to review your award will also not know what you are trying to achieve. So be very clear about your aims and what you seek to achieve. Of course, try not to be overambitious as far as trying to achieve your aims. And um, I, I think you got a lot of tips from the, from the workshop about how you should make the... Um, application more readable to the reviewers and not too dense as far as how you put it together. You should have a lot of figures which are actually readable. So do not overload it with figures, but they are all too small for anybody to appreciate. So those are just some of the things to make your application reader-friendly, for instance. And of course, the cardinal rule is you should start early because writing an application will require a lot of time. It is a very intense activity. It is not something that you would like to do on the fly. Again, some preliminary data is expected, so it really needs to be at least six months before that you are thinking already about what to put in. And you should ask somebody 
perhaps not within your immediate group, to look over your application before you submit it. Because if that other person is not able to understand your application, it is likely that the reviewers will not as well. Take note that not all of the reviewers will actually be in exactly the same area that you are doing. So there may be some terms that is not clear to them. Could be that a statistician will be on the panel and will not be able to see exactly what you're trying to achieve. Okay. And I think I think those that's all excellent advice that certainly was echoed by the the other NIH personnel and the faculty that were at the workshop with us. I think the the really key aspects of that advice were first of all make sure that you're clear and that if you can't state your overarching hypothesis in one or two sentences it's probably too complicated. Mm-hmm. Um some of the faculty emphasized to us that your preliminary data is really key in terms of the study section understanding whether you have the feasibility and um, to be able to perform the project. And they gave a rough rule of thumb that about a third or so of your preliminary data should be published, and mm-hmm. the remainder of your preliminary data can be sort of in the in the queue to to get written up for publication, but a balance of unpublished and published data. They emphasized to us that you need to show productivity as an investigator and that typically you would aim for two papers within a year of your R submission. And those don't have to be your preliminary data. They should be related to your overall topic of interest, but don't have to be necessarily linear with your primary proposal. Um, The reviewers like to see that you've had smaller grants or some history of investment in your research ideas and that you've been productive with those um, prior projects. In terms True. of especially chose- since if you have been a K awardee, there is an expectation that you were productive during that period of the award. You know that you didn't spend five years just, you know, playing around and actually did not produce any substantial or significant result. It would right. be helpful for you to say that, for instance, this preliminary data was generated because of my K award that would be that establishes a sort of a track record that you have been in the system and you have been productive all the way. But again, as mentioned, because the ESIs are clustered together, the expectation is not as high as for an established investigator. But given the competitive environment, you know, the more publications that you can present, of course, the better off you are. Right. And then I think one of my colleagues at the workshop, we we spent a lot of time asking about how to demonstrate independence from your mentor and how much independence and how that can be achieved. And one of the suggestions of the faculty that I thought was helpful was when you're early in your K in the first two to three years, being first author on your manuscripts is appropriate. And as you shift to year three and later of your K, then then it's helpful if you start to to shift to being senior author and that one other place that you can emphasize 
what how you are distinct from your mentors is actually having a letter of support from your mentor for your first R01 where they can explain and delineate for the study section how you have developed during the course of your K to have your own research projects and your own goals uh, with your research and that that's the origin of your R01. It was Mm-hmm. Uh, it was clear from the NIH that it it doesn't you don't necessarily have to publish without your prior mentors or you don't necessarily have to have senior author papers but the pathway to your own independent research program is necessary to show and so the two ways that you can really do that is through your publication record and then through your supporting documents to just specifically address how how you are the primary principal mm-hmm. investigator for for your R01 project. Correct. And also, you know, we do not discourage our awardees from getting other sources of funding, for instance, from the American Lung Association or from you know, other funding sources, not necessarily NIH. Foundation grants are okay. It also shows that your productivity is recognized elsewhere. And although with a K award, you are committed to doing 75% of your uh, time committed to the award, we always encourage you to have other sources of funding, and sometimes we subsume that under your effort especially if it is related to what you're doing. And that is, that is also proof that you are able to obtain awards separate from your mentor, for instance, especially if it's not exactly on the same areas it is working on. But um, as you mentioned, it is important to show some form of independence. A lot of the awardees by this time would have had their own small laboratories with their own mm-hmm. graduate students working under them, and that's, again, another proof of independence. I think that that was very, a very helpful group of suggestions on how to really emphasize the clarity of your grant proposal, the, the amount of preliminary data and feasibility that you have, and, and to, to show your prior productivity and financial support for your research in the strongest way possible. And then if you can lay that out to really sell your idea and sell your story to the reviewer, that 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 is what can contribute to a successful application. I think one other piece of advice that, that I hadn't thought of quite the same way was also to know what the reviewers are asked to do so that reading the instructions for the NIH reviewers while you're preparing your application can be quite helpful because then Mm -hmm. you can see that the reviewers are being asked to comment on rigor and reproducibility and that they need to be able to tell the study section what is novel about your proposal and how your work is so critical to your field. So the more that you can lay out your argument to make the reviewer's job easier, the more able your reviewer will be able to convey your work to the study section. And I thought that was an interesting way to structure your application or to highlight certain elements of your application to really help walk somebody through 
how your idea is going to be a breakthrough for your field and that it make it clear that uh well make it clear why the NIH should invest in your project. And I thought Correct. that that was extremely helpful. Mm-hmm. Now, and if you consider that reviewers do not review only your application but so many others, it would really be helpful if you point out exactly what is the significance of this application, why is it novel, what is the innovation in it, you know, and why is this not incremental if it is successful. Things right. like that, one... which, will, which will convey to them really why your application is above the rest, you know? Right, and one of the faculty explained that the significance of your project is really explaining, well, what is the problem and what is the gap in information that is really critical to solve? And then your innovation is more, what is your solution and how does your research approach make it highly likely that you and your project can can solve the problem that you laid out with your significance? So you want to make sure that you explain um, why the research has to be done and then why your approach is going to work to answer those questions. And if you can lay that out for the reviewer, again, then it it lets your primary reviewer really use that information that you've provided to, to give you the best chance of your research idea being conveyed to study section in the most positive way. Correct. Okay. One of the other things that we talked about at the grant workshop was the RO3 grant mechanism, and this was not something that I was particularly familiar with. Can you explain that grant mechanism and how it might be something K awardees should consider on their path to their RO1? Okay, so at NHLBI, we recently released this RO3, which is, shall we say, exclusively for former or current K awardees. Now, when we say former, that means not a K awardee long, a long, long time ago, but within the last, say, year or two. And the reason that we put this out is because we noticed that many of our K awardees were unable to finish some of the work that they were doing during the K award, and they are in this period between a K and an R where perhaps they do not have sufficient preliminary data in order to apply for an R01, but would still want to work on their projects. So the R03 is a small grant. It's like $50,000 a year that you're allowed to to have. And as mentioned, right now we have offered this for former K awardees or K awardees who are in the last years of their award. And this enables you either to pursue any unfinished research that you had begun, or it can make it can give you an opportunity to pursue a, an extension of what you were doing. You know, something something new that came out of your K award that was not included in the aims of the K, but is something you think is worth pursuing and may enhance your your. Um, probability of success for an R01. So I would like to emphasize this R03 because the success rate for the R03 is tremendous. It's roughly 80% at this time now for our DLD awardees that if you apply, you're almost sure 
of being funded, except for a very few who are either triaged or got a really awful score. But this is a, a tremendous opportunity for our KO1s, KOs, K23s, and KO8s to avail of a little bit more funding. It's not huge. It's only 50000 a year, but it's an in-between or something of a bridge award, so to speak, for right. early investigators. Right. I think what I was very encouraged by is that the NIH has clearly recognized that getting your K is the first milestone, but then that K to R transition is so important and so critical, and that the NIH has acknowledged that that transition can be difficult and that that's a a period of vulnerability for new investigators, and so they've tried to provide an extra mechanism for that bridge funding. And whether that application for an RO3 is is a progression of your K or a side arm from your K project, I think it was really appealing to me that uh, it gives you more pilot funding to to continue to to develop an unexpected finding from your K to where you would be able to have a successful R01 application. And I think having something with the success rate of the RO3s at the moment is really appealing when you're in the middle of your K and trying to think of how you're going to to make this jump to a successful R application. To know that something like this is there is really outstanding and appealing and I really just didn't I wasn't aware of it to know how to incorporate that into my grant application planning timeline. It's an R grant, so it's a research project grant, so it's above a training grant. So that alone is already is sort of a feather in your cap, you know, it's it adds to your CV that you were awarded this grant, which is an R, R, uh, RPG line and not just a training grant. Okay. And just to clarify, this is an RO3 grant. It's not an RO1 level grant. So if you no. apply for and get an RO3, that does not does that affect your early stage investigator status? No, because it's not a significant amount of money involved. So Getting the RO3, just like getting an R21, if there is one that is, you know, along your area that is advertised there, will not affect your ESI status. Okay. So having Excellent. small grants is actually very good for your curriculum vitae and to establish a track record with NIH, especially when your RO1 is being reviewed. Okay. Well, I think, Zinia, I want to thank you for taking the time to do this podcast today with me to help me share some of the things that I learned at the K2R workshop from the Lung Disease Division. And we talked overall about the NIH personnel available with POs and SROs to help us navigate this new process for us. And we talked about early stage investigator status and how beneficial that can be to young investigators. We talked about some tips of how to write a successful R and how to make sure that you're outlining your research question as clearly as possible to really make it easy for a reviewer to understand the importance of your work. And then we talked about this last new funding mechanism of the RO3 to help bridge all of us to um, successful R01 applications. And I think the last message that I would give to my colleagues is that um, for anyone who has 
successfully gotten their K, that that's already a huge accomplishment and increases your success chance of getting an R fairly significantly. And and one of the things that was really emphasized is the granting process um, is time-consuming. Um, we are all passionate about what we do and that when you have good ideas and you have a good approach of how to accomplish your scientific goals, that it will get funded. It may take several times and you may need to improve your applications along the way, but that um, we have already made significant career accomplishments and that those are recognized by the NIH as we move forward through this process. If there is anything else that you would like to ask, please feel free to contact any of us. You know the NIH is your friend and not your enemy. <laughs> and uh, the best way to contact us is actually by email because many times we are attending a meeting or a grant review or, you know, away from our desk. But we try to respond as fast as we can to your emails, and that also you know, reminds us that there is something in the back burner that needs to be addressed. So if you contact us by email, then we can set up a call with you anytime that uh, is available for you and for your program officer or the SRO. That sounds great. Thank you very much for teaching me about the NIH and how to navigate the next step in this process. And and I encourage my colleagues to communicate with their POs and and when appropriate, the SROs, so that we can continue to move the science forward in each of our respective fields. Thank you, Thank Dina. you for the opportunity.